Well, we already prayed. Thank you, MJ. Thank you for getting us off of the second week of Advent. And my prayer for you is that this sermon this morning will engage your heart and that you will, um, you will feel God's light coming into you and going out of you, okay? So I want you to turn to uh, 1 Samuel in your, in your Bible or chapter 11 uh, in your storybook. And we're, last week we talked about Samuel and the transition to Saul as king over the Israelites. This week we're going to talk about David who came after Saul and we're going to talk about that story. And what we're going to deal with is why does David, what's the deal with David? How come he gets more of God's favor than Saul? Because like they wanted a king and you know Samuel anointed Saul. How come, how come this real quick switch, right? And how come David gets more of that? Now, this story takes place on the coastal plain between the Mediterranean Sea and Jerusalem. It's in this area called the Shefla. Can you say Shefla with me? Shefla, okay. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The Shefla is this place where God's people always engaged people who lived in this melting pot area on the coast who were not Jewish, people who were not Jewish. And so anytime you have a story that takes place in the Shefla, um, you know, like Samson, the story of Samson took place in this area as well. Anytime you have a story that takes place in the Shefla area, then you're going to expect to find some other tribes there, particularly the Philistines. And then you're going to find the Philistines and the Israelites trying to figure out how to do life together, which usually means some fighting. And the Israelites are trying to figure out how to represent God in this situation. And so this phrase actually arose. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. A Jewish person who would go to the coast and come back and travel through that area from Jerusalem through the Shefla over to the coast and back. When you got back, people would say, how was your Shefla? How was your Shefla? And what they meant was, how did it go for you amongst people who don't have the faith you have? How did it go for you amongst people who don't have the faith that you have? And that is the constant question for all of you and me as well. How's it going amongst all the people out there that you're in contact with who don't have the faith that you have? People who don't know or follow your God. How's it going? How are you doing with that? Do you look like a Philistine? <laughs> Or do you look like one of God's priests? So that's how we open up this conversation. We also introduced last time this question, does God want Israel to have a king? Does he want him to have a king? And you'd probably think right away, nuh-uh. He doesn't want him to have a king, right? We talked about last week, he's like, the phrase he used with Samuel, when Samuel got so upset that they wanted a king, he was just beating himself up. And the phrase that he used was, uh, God said to him, it's not, it's not you, Samuel, it's me. <laughs> he had that conversation. He said, they, they are rejecting me as their king. But if you go back to Deuteronomy 17, I'm going to put this on the screen for you. This is way before they entered the promised land. Here is how the dialogue goes. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. These are God's words. Way before they're there. 
in the promised land. So does God want a king? What does that sound like? Is he against it? Sure, he wants a king, but there's criteria for the type of king, right? He says, pick the one that I'm going to choose for you. Pick that one. When they want a king over them, why do they want the king? Do they want it because, you know, what's their criteria? What's the people's criteria? Is it that they want God to, to give them one? Do they say it that way? No. They just come to Samuel and they're like, we want a king. We want a king. And that's up there for a reason. <laughs> you know, they don't want one. The criteria is we want a king like everyone else. And so they do what they do. They pick, they, they pick Saul. That's who they pick. And why? Because Saul, he's a head and shoulder taller than everyone else. He's up here. Right? He's not a small dude. He's a head and tall. He's head and, head and shoulder taller than everyone else. He's, he's the man. He stands out as a man among men. Right? He's like a hero. He's the hero of the day. By the way, he's also a donkey herder. That's what the text tells us. He's a donkey herder. Maybe, maybe you forgot that part about Saul. He's like this great warrior king like Captain America, but he's also like Shrek, kind of. And there's some implications there if he's a donkey herder. God's like, hey, Samuel, pick Saul. He's a donkey herder. He's going to be the leader of all these people, and he herds donkeys. What are the implications there? You know? Israel, you want a king? I'm going to give you a donkey herder, you a bunch of... Well, some of you are laughing. The other, yeah, I don't know. Some of you get it. What's another name for donkey? <laughs> okay. Oh, there we go. Good job. Moving on. Okay, so they pick Saul, and it doesn't work out well. Right? Are we surprised? No. When you pick the one that you want and not the one that God wants, guess what happens? So he's rejected, right? He's rejected, and something we didn't really cover last week, but Samuel, he doesn't get in Saul's face, really. He doesn't... He doesn't do this. He doesn't come up to him and point his finger in his face and say, See, I told you so. What the text tells us is that Samuel mourns for Saul. And apparently he mourns him for a really long time. Check this out. In Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, How long? This is God talking to Samuel, his priest. How long are you going to mourn for Saul? Since I've rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So apparently Samuel has been mourning for Saul. Like, this didn't work out. This was horrible. I was really sad about, you know, I wanted this to work out. It didn't. Um, he didn't want it to be that way in the first way, place, but I think it's a really healthy posture for God's leader to be like, this isn't what God wanted in the first place, but God went with it, and this guy's making bad choices, and so I'm going to mourn for him instead of, see, that's what happens to you when you make bad choices. Because none of us would do that, right? None of us would do that. There's a lesson here, right? God, but finally, God's like, okay, Samuel, pull it together. Enough is enough. Get on with it. Fill your horn with oil. And this is the anointing oil uh, that he's going to pour over the head of the new king, 
to set him apart as king. And so he goes to Jesse's house in Bethlehem. And if you don't know the story, Jesse gets out all of his sons. He parades his seven sons out in front of Samuel, right? Starting with the oldest first and going down to the youngest. And Samuel's like, nope, nope, not that one. He's not it. Nope, not that one. And finally, he's like, don't you have any other sons? Because I, you, I just went through all of them, and God says none of them are it. You know? God says none of these are the right one. And Jesse's like, well, there's David, but we left him, we left him out in the field. We didn't even bring him in. He's way too young to be anointed king. Way too young. Like that young. Like he's 12. Okay, I don't know if you remember that movie from Disney, Sword in the Stone, but there's... There's something to that because there's a strong case to be made that David is probably between 8 and 12 years old when this story happens. Okay? So they're like, all right, we'll go get David. So they go get him, and he's coming in from the field. And get this, Samuel looks at him as he's coming in from the field, and he's young, but he's also, he's also short for his age. David is short. He's this little pipsqueak of a kid. Okay? He's a puny guy. He's a small fry. Okay? He's like Rudy. In the movie Rudy, he's like, they're never gonna, he's never going to make it on a Notre Dame football team. He's puny. He walks up. Samuel looks at him, and he just kind of just like dumps it on him, and he just walks away. <laughs> That's how the text kind of tells it. He's out. I mean, seriously, put yourself in David's position. He's out herding sheep. They say, come on in. you got to meet this guy. He walks in back to the house. You know, they told me to come in, and now look at me, and he's covered in oil. We want to, like, when we talk about anointing somebody with oil nowadays, right, they're in the hospital or they're, you know, they need healing, and you get, the, you get the oil that you have to buy from the religious store because nobody else has it, in case you've never done that before. Um, and you, well, yes, Darius, you got all the oil, okay? Yeah, but, and you, and you put it on their head. But that's not what they did back then. It's a horn of oil. Poor kid walks up and he's like, God's like, yeah, that's the one. Samuel's like, you got to be kidding me. Glug, 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 it's like the steward of Gondor when he's going to go kill himself and Lord of the King, return to the king and Lord of the Rings. If you've ever seen that scene, he's a nut job. But he, like, he pours the goil on himself and he's just, you know, it's like that. He, David is just covered in oil. And, of course, all of his brothers are standing there and they've all got, none of them were picked. So are they happy? This is like kind of a repeat of Joseph, right? That, so that is the setup for today. And the question again is, why did God pick David? So 1 Samuel chapter 17 says this. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soka in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soko, Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. Let's hold that right there. How many of you, you know, when you're remembering the story of David and Saul in this transition, you remember these names? The, the Soko, Azekah, the valley of Elah? These are real places. We normally just skip over this stuff. This is the valley of Elah. Let's put that one up there, Ethan. This is just the right half of it. This is a big panoramic photo I want to show you. We're going to go through it in a minute. Darren's going to help me do this for you. You see a Zika on the right. Do you see that? Way over on your right. So it's way over here. Okay. It's up on a hill. That's the tell of a Zika. 
uh, what we think is likely is that the Israelite army camped right where that line is pointing to. So I'm gonna, let's go to the next slide. You'll see it all kind of shift over. So now you can see a line with nothing attached to it coming down into the foreground right here. Uh, right here, it comes like that. And this is the valley where this farm field is, okay? That's where the Israelites camped, right around in here, Philistine camp over here. And this is Soko, okay? That's Soko. Um, also, if you follow along this picture, all down here along the tree line, it's hard to see, there's a little stream bed, which would be kind of important as the story goes. Maybe that's where David got his stone in that stream bed. Um, but this is going from, uh, let's go to the next one. I'll show you a different shot here. Um, that's kind of the middle shot. We might come back to that in a minute. Let's go to the next one, Darren. Okay. Now, this is the Valley of Elah. It starts up here. Azekah is right here. Okay. Azekah is right here. And that whole picture, that panoramic picture, was from over here on this side looking this way. All stretched out in front of you. So Azekah, Soka, Israelite army, Philistine army, and the battle's going to take place down in there. Now let's go back to that previous one for a minute. So the story is that the Philistines are on the ridge line up over here, and, and the Israelites are on this ridge line up over here, and the valley is in between. And every day, this guy named who? What's his name? Goliath. He's like, how tall? Nine feet tall. But remember, Saul is the king, and he's their leader, and he's supposed to fight for them and go out before them, and he is head and shoulders above everyone else, in case you forgot that part of the story. Goliath comes out in the middle of this valley, twice a day in the middle of that field. In the Hebrew, he comes out, the Hebrew says he comes out twice a day at 11 and 3. 11 and 3 are the times when the Israelites are doing their prayers and sacrifices every day. So he's picked those times on purpose. He comes out at 11 and 3. And what I want you to hear is that Goliath is not just saying, bark, 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 you chickens, McFly, you chicken. What's the matter, McFly? He's saying, at their time of, of sacrifice to atone for their sins, he's coming out and he's saying, your God is worthless. Over and over and over and over and over again. That's what he's saying to them. Oh, you're trying to remember your God? Well, let's go. Is your God worth remembering? Let's go then. Bring it on. Get down here. Mano y mano. You're all up there saying you believe in God, doing your sacrifices and doing all that, but none of you have enough faith to come down here and stand up for him. Do you? Bring it on. Now, I want to introduce you to a very, very, very important Hebrew concept. Um, and I want you to say these words after me. It's called Kadush Hashem. Say Kadush Hashem. Again, Kadush Hashem. This Hebrew phrase means hallow the name. Kadush Hashem is what God's people are called to. It is their role as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And this idea is really, really, really important in the Hebrew mindset. To Kadush Hashem, to hallow the name, you are called to be this kingdom of priests. You're meant to stand out. You're meant to be other. You're meant to be set apart. You're meant to be holy. You look different than the world around you. 
you therefore must bring honor to God's name. Kadush Hashem is what God's people are supposed to be doing. Jesus, when his disciples ask him in Luke 11, how do we pray? Jesus says, our Father who art in heaven, Kadush Hashem. Our Father who art in heaven, Kadush Hashem, hallowed be thy name, right? This is central to the Jewish mindset. If you're going to be God's people, then you have to bring honor to his name. So Goliath is not just taunting the Israelites and calling them cowards and calling them chicken. He's calling them out on a fundamental principle of following their God in a concrete, practical way, not just in your head. Oh, I believe. You going to let me make fun of your God? Or are you going to kadush Hashem? What are you going to do, huh? What are you going to do? That's what he's saying to him. So David's brothers are standing. Let's go back to that. Pop back over to that picture for us that shows the valley real quick, Darren. David's brothers are standing up. Go to the previous one with the arrows, the, the third. Yeah, that one. They're, they're standing somewhere up here, and they're looking down, and Goliath's down here in the middle going, What's up? I spit in the face of your puny God. You don't mean what you say because you don't put it into practice, right? I want you to imagine David showing up to this display. And they're all looking, and Goliath comes out and says, anyone want to challenge me? And David's like, are you, seriously? Are you guys going to let him? Nobody, everybody's like, everybody's like, you know? Are you going to let him talk to you like that? And they're like, David, shut it. Shut up. You are just a kid. You're only 12. You think you're so brave? It's easy to sit up here and talk, kid. What are you going to do? Sit down and shut up. You're just a kid. And David's like, whatever, I'll fight him. <laughs> whatever, I'll fight him. Put me in, coach. Put me in. And they're like, sure. <laughs> Anybody know what that's like with older brothers or sisters? Right? <laughs> oh, how the tables turned when my little brother <laughs> became a heavyweight all-state all wrestler. <laughs> the fighting stopped. <laughs> uh, yeah. He outgrew me, he outweighed me, he, out, he just he outskilled me. And David's like, no, really, he is talking smack to God. I'll go fight him. And here's the question. If, if all the Israelite army is camped there, where the heck is Saul? He's the one, right? He should be leading the charge. He is the king who goes out before. He's the one that rallies the troops. He should be out there like Braveheart, you know, Let's go. Who should be fighting Goliath? Who should be fighting Goliath? Saul should be fighting Goliath. He stands head and shoulders above everybody else. Their king should fight for them, and he is hiding out. So little pipsqueak David is like, I'll fight him, and he goes up and he finds Saul. And imagine this. You're the king of Israel, and you're head and shoulders above everyone else. You're the king of Israel. And this 12-year-old boy comes in and says, I'll fight him. I'll do it right now. What would you say if you were Saul? You're crazy, kid. Get out of here. Right? What does Saul say? That's a great idea. Let's do it. Again, 
donkey herder. <laughs> Saul says, okay, fine, but I want you to put on my armor, and he's huge, and David is small, and it looked like when you were like, uh, you know, like when you put, like if I put my shirt on my kid when they were two. <laughs> That's what his armor looked like. You imagine just swimming around in it. So he doesn't wear it, and he goes and grabs his sling, and he goes down to the stream, and he picks up these five stones. And our, our tech team was talking about this this morning. Why does he pick up five stones? Why is it five? Why is it five? And that's what everybody wants to know. Some people say it's because he must have had four brothers. Goliath must have had four brothers. He's going to have to take them all out or something like that. There's some speculation there. But that's not a very Jewish way of thinking about it. If you think about it in a Jewish way, you would know that numbers are not quantitative. They are qualitative. Numbers stand for something. So David picks up five stones for the same reason that Jesus picks up five loaves of bread to feed the Israelites. The number five represents the word of God to them. The first five books of the Old Testament scriptures, the Torah, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Torah is supreme. The law, the word of God to them. And so I'm not saying that it wasn't literally five stones, but, you know, did he actually have five stones or not? Who cares? The writer is saying, look, yeah, he didn't need them, number one. He only needed one. But the writer's saying there's something else going on here, and I'll tell you why. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll pop out to you here in a minute, but he's actually making a statement about his agenda. When I walk out onto this field, I'm not just representing me or my scared brothers up on the ridgeline. I am representing the name of God. And I will Kadush Hashem. I will Kadush Hashem. You better believe it. So he takes the stone and he wings it like a rocket. It hits Goliath where? Right in the middle of the forehead. Think back to week four. Week four in our story. We talked about Tephilim, the boxes that Jewish men are supposed to wear on their forehead or close to their heart on their arm, right? Where are you supposed to bind the word of God? To your forehead, right? David takes five stones, representing the word of God. This guy who's been calling them out and saying, you bunch of sissies, you don't practice what you preach. You're a bunch of fakers. And David goes, oh yeah? Fake this. (laughs) Wham! And he plants that word of God right there on his forehead. He hits him in the head with a stone. Maybe there's a deeper point to this story, okay? You guys tracking with me? Hits him with the stone. Goliath falls down dead. He takes Goliath's own sword and cuts his head off. If you Google this, it always shows David, you know, he's like this little tiny guy and he's got this massive, and he's like, you know, like that. It's kind of like watching all the old 60s and 70s claymation Greek Orthodox, you know, not Greek Orthodox, Greek films, you know, uh, Zeus and all that. Uh, Jason and the Argonauts, that's what I'm thinking of. Cuts off his head, and I don't think that that's how David did it. Like, he didn't go wham, and then he's like, oh, because then he would have been bringing glory. That's just our artist's depictions of it. He would have been trying to bring the glory to himself. And I don't think that anybody who's willing to kadush Hashem, to honor the name of God, would ever really revel in somebody else's death. 
and then try to take that honor for themselves. I don't think that's what he's doing. What I think he was doing was saying this, no one, and I mean no one, will make fun of my God. Now listen, we're going to wrap this up, and we, we like to do these, our table groups in the morning. So I know it's Seattle, and I know like in our current day and age, it's like, what, you want me to talk to people? Yeah, we find that the best type of discipleship happens in circles, not in rows. And uh, we also know that having a time where we preach the word to each other is really good because the best sermons are the ones where we, where we all preach it together. It's not just listening to whoever's up here, but we all speak to each other in and from our own lives and we do a deeper amount of learning and growing and practicing who we say we are, right? That's discipleship. So there's all kinds of implications to this, but what I would suggest is that perhaps one of the major things we have to wrestle with here is how are we justifying being like the Israelites on the hill and talking like we're David. I, let me put it this way. I can't tell you how many times I've had people say to me, well, I agree with you in principle. I agree with you in principle as if there's some kind of difference between <laughs> principle and practice. What you're saying is, right in principle but you don't understand like what you're saying to me worth is yes I agree with you in principle but you don't understand my life in practice it's blah blah and I'm just like la 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 like you're saying this is right but you don't want to do it you're saying this is right but you're saying you don't have time you know what you're saying what you're saying worth for God's agenda on my, on my time, God's agenda for my commitment level, God's agenda for how I relate to my coworkers, God's agenda for how I relate to and spend my money, God's agenda for my relationship with my spouse or my boyfriend or my girlfriend, God's agenda for how I relate to the shefla, people who don't know God. Yeah, we're all... All that, sure, true, in principle. But I'm not Jesus. I'm just human. I'm only human. Listen to me. If it is true in principle for you, then it should be true in practice. And conversely, if it is not true in practice for you, then it is not true in principle. Yeah. No matter what you say you believe, there are a whole lot of people I've met in church over the years, in all the churches that I've been in, even growing up, who try to act like they are David. You try to say you're David. You try to act like you're David. You talk in a big game, but you're living like the Israelites, cowering and scared up on the ridge line, up on the hill. And you're saying stuff like, yeah, the giants are there, and I see them, and my God can conquer them, and I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to, I'm going to sing. I'm going to, I'm going to pray at 11 and 3. I'm going to offer the sacrifices. But I'm not willing to have the faith to step out and kadush Hashem. There should be no difference between practice and principle. 
that's a big implication here from this story. And if we're going to live as if there is, then we're going to wind up, what we're going to wind up doing is we're, we're going to be perhaps head and shoulders above everyone else. We're all going to end up being head and shoulders above everyone else. Look at me, I believe the right things. Yay. You know? But sitting in a comfortable throne room, being protected by our guards, rather than out there slaying giants and leading the charge. And that's the question. Which one do you want for your life? Which one do you want for your life? I would suggest that maybe another implication of this is that Saul is this, he's this big, strapping, classic hero type, and David's the little pipsqueak, and yet he is the one who is accomplishing all these great things. Because perhaps it's the one who looks inadequate, who looks like they don't have it together, who looks like they can't accomplish anything. That's exactly the criteria that God needs to do something great. So how many of us have leveraged, I know I have, how many of us have leveraged this kind of statement? I don't know enough. I haven't been Christian long enough. I haven't practiced what I preach long enough. What if I say the wrong thing? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if, right? To that I would say perhaps you'll take this suggestion. If you're willing to kadush Hashem, to hallow the name, then God has a plan for you. Stop making excuses and kadush Hashem. That's where we're kind of kind of leave it. So it, we're going to go to our table groups this morning, and I would just invite you to deal with those implications together because I think there's a lot of us who, who want to talk like David, but we're living like the Israelites. And I would say maybe it's time for us to line up our principle and our practice in our hearts, and God's going to lead you into some crazy places. He will. Some crazy places. He led me here. Boy, is it crazy. You know, Seattle, never thought I would live here. You're going to be asked to do some ridiculous things. They're not comfortable. And I, to that I just say, what do you want to be a part of? What do you want to be a part of? Because you've got a choice. You've got one life to live. You want to be up on the hillside shuffling your feet and looking down and twiddling your thumbs your whole life like a selfish donkey herder who's only interested in saving his own, do you know what? <laughs> or do you want to get in the game, y'all? Do you want to get in the game, join the fight, slay some giants, right? I don't know about you, but I have to choose, if I have to choose between living scared or slaying giants, I'm going to slay some giants. I'm at least going to try to. Yeah? I mean, I'll say it again. This is why every morning, one or the other of us, my wife or I, when we walk out the door with our kids, off to slay some giants. Are you ready to make the world a better place? What we're saying is, are you ready to follow Jesus, find out what God's up to, and join him in it, in practice, not just in your head? Where are your practices and principles not lining up in your life? And what are you going to do about it? Okay? Let's pray.